0: Welcome to The Trevor Turnbull Show, where you'll hear vulnerable, honest stories that will inspire you to embrace your mess and live your best life. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. My guest today is Mike Olasky. Mike is a longtime close friend of mine who I've known for over 25 years now. And one of the reasons that I decided to have Mike on as one of my very first guests For the podcast is that we've been through so many experiences together in life, going all the way back to the days when we were two teenagers playing hockey, all the way through to where we reconnected again in the early 2000s. And Mike was the person that handed me the four-hour work week book and the e-myth, two books that were really instrumental in shaping my mind about possibilities outside of just having a job. And of course, over the years, Mike and I have Own numerous businesses together. Some of them have worked, some of them have not worked. We've been through, you know, two different marriages. In my case, he's gone through numerous relationships. We've had our ups and downs. We've been in fistfights together before. And on this podcast, what we really dove into is just talking about some of those experiences from when we first connected and how we had different recollections of those experiences. For example, the coaches that we had over the years in hockey, uh, people that we Played hockey with that, you know. In one case, uh, one of our former teammates ended up taking his own life. We talked about what that meant to us and what it still means to us to this day, and and how it's impacted the way that we live our own lives. We also even talked about drugs on this episode. That was something that was unexpected, but at the same time, I'm glad that we dove into it. It was a natural conversation where I've been exploring the idea of ayahuasca and some of these different mind-altering drugs as a means to be able to raise my own consciousness of possibility and being able to see things in a different way. And I can tell you that over the years, that has shifted dramatically. I used to not want to have anything to do with them. And in fact, I've had lots of bad experiences actually doing different drugs over the years. And we talked about that openly on this conversation here today. And of course, we talked about a project that Mike is working on right now that's really his passion project and the thing that he's driving uh, everything in his life around, which is the Rehabit app. And this is really about Mike's own journey of shaping and being consciously aware of and changing his own daily habits so that he can make an impact and a change in his overall life. And Really aligned with the kind of life that he truly deserves and wants to live as his best life. So, you know, this is something that he's extremely passionate about. And the journey that he's taken to get to this point is, of course, a huge part of that process. And that's what I want to share with you here on this interview. So, this is part one of a two part series because we had a lot to talk about. I think you're going to enjoy this one. So, let's go ahead and listen to the interview. Mike Alasky, welcome to the Trevor Turnbull Show. I'm excited to have you here. Hey, excited to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was, uh, we were obviously bantering a little bit before uh, flipping the the record button here. And um, I want you to share really quickly that affirmation that you just talked about a second ago, because I think it'll set the context of what we're going to talk about here today.
1: All right, I will. So this is uh, um, this guy named Brian Scott. He's got this uh, YouTube podcast called Reality Revolution. He's a reality hacker, which is um, sort of like law of attraction in some requests. But the affirmation goes like this. Um, Everything is working out to my advantage. Something wonderful is happening for me now. My world is taking care of me. Everything is going according to plan. Things are working out beautifully and will continue to do so with ease.
0: Love it. Yeah, it's. um, I shared mine with you with regard. We were just talking about like doing opening intros and closing outros and that type of thing for podcasts because you and I have, uh, you know, collaborated and brainstormed on ideas many, many times over the years. But mine is today is a beautiful day of opportunity. Trust that you're exactly where you're supposed to be right now. So be grateful, be curious, and be brave. So I love, I love starting off with that kind of intention and, um, you know, spoken words. So anyways, you are my first guest and the reason why I chose you as my first guest. And I remember I, we had this conversation a couple of weeks ago when I was telling you about my intention for doing this show and, and ultimately what's driving me to do it because, you know, both of us have kind of been in this entrepreneurial world for the better part of 15 years and you know, we even had a podcast ourselves at one point that I think we ended up pumping out what, six or seven episodes or something, but it never really got legs, just life situation and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, the reason why I chose you as the first guest is I knew that we'd be able to dive into all of the stuff that we've gone through over the years, which is a lot of crazy stories and and quite frankly, you know, just that stories, right? Things that are both uplifting and things that have maybe even held both of us back over the years. And then we just be able to kind of spitball on some of the learnings from that and you know, how it's shaped our beliefs and how it's driving even some of the projects that we're working on right now. So um,
1: I'm honored to have you
0: as my first guest, Mike.
1: Well, thank you. And I'll self deprecate and say what I said to you the (laughs) first time you mentioned having me uh, on your show first. And because we did that podcast before, we know that working together, we decided to bring somebody on that we knew we could just mess it all up and <laughs> it would be okay. Sort of like a trial and error show. So I am yeah. honored to be part of your trial and error show Trevor. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So
0: I've got a chronological order of things that I definitely want to address with you for however long we go here. Cause we're just going to kind of let it flow and see, but, um, we can bounce around on these, but I, I wanted to start with this. And it's kind of like right in the middle. It's not at the start of our journey because, you know, in the intro, I would have explained kind Mm -hmm. of our background and where, you know, we got first connected and all that kind of stuff. But I feel like there's a centering point in the discussion right now. And I mentioned this to you when we chatted last time, that revolves around a spider bite. So (laughs) you wrote a blog post. When was that? Was that like two thousand three or two thousand two, something
1: like that? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, well, it happened in Seoul, South Korea. Um, so it had to be after that. That was two thousand five or six. Um, okay. It was the it was the winter of the year of your marriage, your first marriage. Right. So uh, because I, I was in Korea, then Thailand, then I landed coming in hot <laughs> off the ferry boat. With yeah. my flip-flops out here, best man, wedding, no speech, <laughs> no, yeah. no wash Yeah, <laughs> So it
0: was kind of after, so going back to our, our original connection, like we met in like 94, I think it would have been when we first started playing hockey together and then kind of lost touch between like 97 to probably 2003. And then we started playing hockey together again, which is kind of what connected us. And there's a lot of pieces in between there, but you know, so around that two thousand four, two thousand five. So you're in Korea, and you went there to teach English, right? And this was kind of, and we'll jump back to some of the hockey stuff because I think that's important in this as well. But so tell the story. I want you to tell the story. And also, I was trying to find the article. I don't think that website is up
1: anymore, right? MJ Oleo, is it still live? No, no, it's not. Um, I gar- i have it on a hard drive somewhere for sure. But it wasn't the greatest story in the world, but. I was just practicing writing. And at the time, in 05 or 06 or whatever, um, this was even before I launched my first blog for business. Um, but I, I just knew I wanted to publish on a website. I was just starting to use WordPress. So I had this blog called MJ Olio, which was my initials, MJO, <laughs> connected to portfolio. Yeah. <laughs> Not my greatest creative work, but uh the the story goes um well I had this tiny little one room apartment in Seoul it was, it was quite nice in this big high rise and on this strip of high rises it was a really interesting um suburb south of Seoul called bundong and um I had taken off my pants and let them fall on the ground and went to bed and woke up and the next morning I was late for school or work I was teaching threw on my pants and then I felt a sharp sharp something and I kind of just ah what was that and and then went about my day, and as my the day progressed, I started feeling uh, odd and weird. And we were out for dinner and drinks later, and I could, I just felt that area, and it was like, I had lymph nodes were all swollen, and uh, and then so I took my pants off to see what was going on, and I could see this sort of trail of spider bites on my leg, um, and so this bite the spider bit me three times, I, at least I think it was a spider. I think I remember yep. seeing spiders around the uh, apartment before. And of course, I got really freaked out uh, <laughs> that it was a brown recluse and I was going to die for sure. I think I got went and got some injections or something. <laughs> but it uh, turns out I was fine. Um, and then I wrote that story about it. And, you know, I, I was a big, long exposition and sort of creative writing experience. But what I remember from the website was, You know, our friends back home (laughs) kind of just slamming it like, have you? And there's one friend we won't, who'll go nameless, but if you're one of our friends, this impression should clue you in. Have you seen MJ Olio?
0: (laughs) Yeah, all of our Um, buddies will know exactly what we're talking about.
1: So, uh, yeah, that was that. And, um, actually it was neat because that blog got my first comment of all, of all the comments ever in all blog posts I've written or whatever. And it was some lady, some, someone who was a fan of Nippon Hawks and said, um, one of the best Hawks ever. When I saw that published, I was surprised. I was like, who, how, why? And then I was just like really happy, (laughs) you know, like I got a compliment and that's when it kind of hit home how powerful it all was right like um and yeah. uh yeah so that was the birth of my um publishing on the on the interwebs well and that's the reason
0: why I wanted to start with that was I'm glad you articulated it the way that you did because there was your experience and then you diving into this online space and publishing and then getting this satisfaction of like the comments and something that brought you back to almost 10 years earlier. And then also some of the the judgment, I guess you wanna call it from friends and stuff that were in our small circle, this small little bubble. because. I talk about this all the time that, you know, in the early 2000s, like social media didn't really exist. I don't know about you, but I didn't even get a cell phone, I think, until like 2006. Like I had a flip phone maybe in like 2003 and I was, you know, doing the old texting where you had to click the button four times to get an S, that type of thing, right? But, you know, this was just the starting points of, I think, some really critical trigger moments for both of us, right? Like you dove into that space first. And I remember being one of those people, too, that was that was looking at this and thinking, what is this? Really, this guy published a, an article about a spider bite? Like, I was in that same bucket, right, of being that judgmental person and being like, how could you share something like that publicly? And looking back on it, it's just crazy to think. But let's maybe use that as an opportunity to dive back into 10 years earlier and like 1994, 1995 type thing when we first met. Because you talked about the fact that, you know, you received a comment about one of the greatest hawks ever, you know, and that was a time I would say that for both of us was like some of the greatest times of our life, right? Where you were on top of the world and had tons of confidence and, and had experiences leading up to that that built that confidence and even people that helped build it too. Do you want to maybe talk about... Just quickly, your journey as a hockey player to that point of being a junior A, kind of 18, 19-year-old in Nipawin, Saskatchewan. To that point?
1: <laughs> well, it all started when I was six. <laughs> I was
0: all like, right, let's black. speed it up
1: a little bit. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, I will fast forward to Nipawin, but it was, you know what, that year um, where we met, I was 19, and it was my first year in Nipawin. I was playing hockey in Merritt, BC, the year before. I had a really rocky career, um, you know, personality conflicts and, uh, you know, it's tough, I think, for even the best of the most well-grounded individual to make it as a hockey player because you're so um, beholden to the whims of your coach and the fortunes of your teammates or your line mates and, And so when I found myself in Nipwin, I had actually forced the trade from Merritt, where I had just been benched for the whole, literally the whole half of the second of the season. (laughs) So the first half of the season, I was like the leading rookie scorer. And then the second half of the season, I was totally benched. You know, actually, Trevor... I'm going to take a minute to have a you, you wanted to touch on something I've never talked about before, but I've been kicking around how I'm going to approach my um, channel, my podcast, my project, uh, Rehabit. And and I mentioned uh, Brian Scott, this reality hacker. So one way I describe reality hacking is scientific prayer. Um, most people would ground be grounded into it through law of attraction like what the energy karma what energy you put out you get back you know it's very common um sort of life uh view these days Uh, but um Joe Dispenza um and uh, Greg Braden and um Bruce Lipton they talk about especially Greg Braden he references the lost scriptures and the lost modes of prayer And it's really about visualization, having an image, emotionalization, having a felt sense of what it would feel like to have that vision. And then like that feeling in your body and taking a step towards that that reality is the formula for scientific prayer, for for prayer in scripture. And that year in hockey and merit, I remember, and and the guy who was the benefactor of this prayer uh, (laughs) probably wouldn't, Want to hear the story? But I remember thinking, like, ah, oh, I was bummed because he wasn't playing much. He was sort of on the flip side of me, and I, I was a, a subscriber to my mother's belief modalities and she was a, a Christian, and so I, 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 I prayed for him, and um, I did it in this way that was not like a typical prayer. It was very much like this lost mode of scientific prayer, and I really just got a felt sense of how it be for him to have. Some success because I want because I I loved him. He was my roommate, and um, <laughs> I not much later longer. My, my prayers were answered, but I was the um, <laughs> you know the 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 vehicle for his ice time. <laughs> um, so I stopped playing. He started playing. He did amazing and had a great career. I got benched and asked for a trade that summer. And there's been a handful of stories like that in my life where. Um, you know, something has come true that I've uttered or prayed around or had this, you know, intense desire for. And that's what I'm actually focusing on in my project more. Now, coming back to uh, Nippon, I landed there, I'm 19. And it was the best year of my life, literally, like, most definitely the best year of my life. If you account for like a full season of hockey, um, no injuries, you know, great performance, great teammates. It was just amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I recall that year meeting you and you were a young one, 17, I was 19, I was two years older than you. (laughs) And, um, you know, you didn't really land in my awareness too much because you were in and out of the team, right? You started the team, then you got sent down. Then at the end of the year, I think you came back. Is that right? Yep, exactly. Yeah yeah and so, just for everyone who doesn't realize like there's plenty of parties in between, right, so that we cross paths along the way, yeah, but you know hawk season's long and deep, and you know people come and go, and uh we did develop a friendship then, but the next year, I was twenty, and you made the team that year, and we were playing together, and I broke my leg that year, about twenty games in, and um talking about how careers went up and down and how everything changes like that, really, when I look back, pretty much put a cap in my career. Like it just sent me on a path of, you know, outcomes that were seemingly dependent on that leg breaking. And it's funny how quickly your fortunes can change in a year. And it's funny how much you can yeah. put faith in a belief that one event, you know, predicates your outcomes. Now I say that out loud. I don't actually think that's the case but it sure felt like it then right yeah and throughout my hockey career it sure felt like that that breaking that leg that year um really was the precursor for the end of my career
0: it's kind of an analogy to all other instances and events that happen over the years beyond that too right because at that point you're a hockey player like I know speaking from my own perspective like when I was 18 that's all I was like I that's all I lived for that's all I did And if something like for me, for you, it was breaking a leg for me. Like my experience in that time was being 17 and not making the team, but then coming back at the end of the year and coming in with lots of excitement and build up in 18, my 18 year old year. And I only played half the season. I don't even know if you remember that, but I played half the season and I got sent down to junior B that was like breaking a leg for me in the same year when I was 20. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I spent half a season in Canistano. Saskatchewan
1: (laughs) did you come back
0: at the end of that year I came back at the end uh I think I came back at the end of that year I don't even remember but I remember at the time it being just like devastating and thinking like oh my lord I spent 18 years to get to this point now I'm playing in this junior B league right now fighting every second game like it was a major gut blow, but then, you know, fast forward a couple of years later and I'm in Kindersley and then I'm in Minot and then I'm the captain of that team. And like, it just shaped the rest of, um, you know, my identity in hockey. So, but it, I, I can relate to the idea of like, at the time it feeling like it was just a devastating blow to your identity and who, and what your future might look like really quickly. Cause I want to make sure that we address this too. talk about some of the people at that time that were super impactful for you the two two that come to mind obviously is bruce thompson and uh kyle miller let's talk about mm. both of those guys and what they did in shaping some of your beliefs and just the way that yeah just the way that your journey uh ended up going
1: you know <laughs> any hockey teams a cast of characters but this team i thought was particularly close and um Bruce Thompson. It was his first year in NIP1, and as I mentioned, I, I, I forced a trade from uh, <laughs> from Merritt. And um, because I forced the trade, Merritt didn't have much of a bargaining hand. Um, and so Bruce had heard that I was available, and traded this a guy that his nickname was Pilepuke. Um, <laughs> That's Which, how mean we are in junior hockey. It's really quick. Um, it's crazy to think back
0: then, like, it wasn't like there was the internet or social media to find out that Mike is available in Merritt, BC. Like, do you remember how he knew that? Like, did he have a contact that was like a coach in Merritt that he used to know or something?
1: Uh, You know what? I'm trying to remember. I remember the first phone call I had with uh, Bruce, and uh, then Reggie Strangé called me. Called me a few hours later. He told me I think that uh, he was scouting the um, summer camps in Kelowna. Uh, So there Mm. was these uh, summer camps in Kelowna where you were just all the all the junior hockey players would come and play each other for a week or two, and people would come watch and get a sense of everything. And I think at that camp, I had already made it known, so he would have picked it up then. And gotcha. then he went home and started working on it. But he traded for me. And um, he likes to say that it was the best trade he ever made. Um, but it, like I said, like I said, he didn't have, he had a really strong hand. <laughs> so anyway, um, Bruce Thompson, it was his first year in Nippon. And I think it was his first year as a head coach. He was an assistant coach um, in Waver. really old school, like Detroit Red Wing coach, um, Babcock old school, like gritty and mean sometimes, but the like also a best friend. Like um uh, like like we've literally we gotten fights at his wedding and like (laughs) like just had the best times ever. And um I think the game I broke my leg, he literally kicked me in the ass on the bench because I just finished um dangling up the ice (laughs) and I didn't pass the puck. And on one kicked knee me the, at one point. Yeah, and he kicked me in the ass, like, <laughs> come on, like, get your get get, you know, get your head out of your ass. And then I we scored a goal with Reggie, and he was like, Okay, that's better. And then I went and dangled up the ice like a play later and broke my leg because of it, because <laughs> <laughs> I got collapsed on by two people. But Bruce was was um was a great find, and it's a good example of how <clears throat> hockey and team sports you're so bound by the fortune of the people around you and um, your fortune to be, ba- uh, to be around people of value. Um, yep. And uh, you know, for you, you had a different experience with Bruce, but for me, and I always try to bring you over to the, the Brewster side um, and, and I, I respect your, your journey, your experience. Um, certainly I can see that Bruce's character could have felt like that for someone who didn't happen to have this best trade ever um, sort of, uh cloaking, you know, like yeah. Um, yeah. so I had opportunity right out of the gate, which was amazing. And um, I was fortunate enough to put on the uh, line from day one with this guy named Kyle Miller. He too was also a find of Bruce Thompson's. He recruited him out of Manitoba. And um, Kyle Miller was this big, lanky, awkward, crazy dude. Like, we're we're all crazy, honestly. And um, but we hit it off um, as friends and line mates. And, um, you know, we had a fantastic year. He led the league in scoring. And I, I was, I think, finished 10th or so. And um, he was the MVP. Um, and he was, was just laughing because, oh, you cracked the top
0: 10 in junior? Because remember our senior year when you were like one point away? Or I, I tried like to that. chisel a
1: point to get yeah, in yeah, the yeah. top 10. We'll, uh, and we'll talk there was something. That. There's yeah. something I have never shared before, but it's true. I was sitting <laughs> in the penalty box saying to my own scorekeeper, give me a point. I'm one point <laughs> out of the top 10, like a hard chisel, not a soft one where it's like from 10, just
0: yeah, <laughs> to straight up, just, just, just forge it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like find me 11,000 votes in, in Georgia. <laughs> um, but anyway, Kyle, you know, when you brought those two up, I was like, ah, shit, you're going to make me cry. Like, um, uh, Jerry Maguire interview, um tragic bass fish- fishing accident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um but you know Kyle actually ended up committing suicide and he I didn't find out for a year or two after. And it was devastating for me because um, you know, he had come spent a lot of time with me after we'd almost played to college together. He recruited me to go to his college school. And I just think about, you know those times how much how much how many things you go through as a young man a at 19 like as a hockey player like maybe if you're just typical you know high school I'm going to university and I got some marketing classes it's not the same but for us like you were mentioning being on top of the world talk of the town you know girls friends everywhere you could imagine and um so much drinking <laughs> and and so much pride, and so much drama, and so much shame sometimes too, because you're um, either you know do something when you're drunk that you're ashamed of, or do something when you're sober that you're ashamed of, or don't make a team and you're ashamed of that, or you make a bad play. Like there is a shame component, and when I'm and the reason why I'm bringing that up is because Kyle suffered from that, and, okay. and so have I over time, and and there's a the part of the rehabit journey I'm on is is about reframing your own relationship with yourself yeah. because at 47, you know, halfway home, at least hopefully we, we get 300 years out of our um, yeah, rapidly progressing knows. technology. <laughs> um, yeah. But you you reflect on the ages of your grandma and your grandpa and you think, all right, I guess maybe I'm halfway. And um, it was a time of great um, influence and, so many beliefs got formed in those years, and when I moved to Korea, was out of my um, extremely clear desire to put away who I was back then. Um, mm-hmm. So I was like you, fighting a lot. I had suffered a lot of injuries from fighting, but one of them, which one was it? This side, this. Yeah this side I I shattered this orbital I just got punched so many times right hitting this eye here. Yeah. It was fairly epic. You were there. <laughs> I remember that night. Yeah, I was I think I was inside and you were out in the alley. <laughs>
0: at the uh, the local Yeah, I was locked out in the alley.
1: And and after that night I decided no no more. I'm not doing that anymore. And um so I kind of quit drinking around then and I, I I told myself I'd never fight again. I did get in one more fight at the same bar about a couple months later. <laughs> but that was pretty comical too. And I, you know, I survived and it, it went well. And it was it was a wake-up call that one because just the way it went down, it was like the cherry on top, like, okay, I'm done. Enough. Yeah. You know. And so the belief of who I was then was, you know, at the time I was a hockey player. Till that time I left saskatoon for korea and i haven't been a hockey player since um Which i still played like hockey like, from time what, to time like but 26 27 or something then yeah probably yeah. maybe a little yeah. bit
0: even yeah
1: yeah and we played summer leagues or whatever from time to time but not much and you might remember i was kind of always hesitant like the odd time i'd go and it'd be kind of fun but yeah. i never wanted to get back into the dynamics of everybody jostling for ice time and getting points and chipping at each other and like just yeah. too many triggers. <laughs> yeah, totally.
0: Yeah. And that, so going back to the, the Nippon days, cause you mentioned Bruce and my experience too. And I haven't talked about this publicly really either, either before. And of course, you know, I'm sure Bruce will probably end up watching this, but um, you and I have talked about this numerous times about our experience in junior hockey and how you, it's seemingly like you had such a great relationship with Bruce and you had a lot of things that were lifting you up and you ended up getting your scholarship and that type of thing. And for the longest time I looked at my experience as like, you know, I was like without being conceited, but like I was the stud all the way from like six years old up until that point, you know, like even being listed and being in Prince Albert and stuff. And it seemed like my whole world just collapsed around me in like a year and a half, you know, and, I held on to that story as like something that's number one drove me, but two that held me back. Because dude, I remember in my 19-year-old year when I so I went down to Kinistano and then I got this is how my journey went, but I got picked up by Kindersley because the coach in Canistano ended up becoming the head coach in Kindersley. And I went there and spent three months there and then got traded. And I remember that summer leading up to the 19 year old year. And I was in the gym every single day. And the only thing I still remember it, man, being on the bench and just going like, fuck you, Bruce Thompson. I'm going to fucking show you like, seriously, man, it was in my head. Like it was the thing that drove me. Yeah. And I look at it now and I'm sure Bruce is <laughs> maybe laughing when he hears me say that, but like, I fucking hated Bruce Thompson when I was 18 and 17 years old. And now looking back, and this is probably 10 years ago when I came to terms with this, I was like, what my experience in working with Bruce was the, probably one of the greatest gifts that I ever received because it gave me the opportunity to face a challenge that I had never faced before. Cause everything was just handed to me before that, you know? Yeah. And I can see how it's actually shaped who I am now, but there had to be a moments of like forgiveness for like me and for him even too, because I know Bruce didn't have any ill will towards like making sure that my life was destroyed. It was quite the opposite. He probably saw something in me and said, you're not giving everything you have more. And I can see numerous times in my life where I challenge myself on that. Now where I'm like, why are you playing small? You know, to kind of use the the terminology, but I just wanted to to kind of frame that because I knew that uh, we both had different experiences coming out of that. And, you know, if you want to jump ahead even a little bit in between like 97 to 99, it feels like we're going through the chronological order here. But when you left and then went to college, that was a whole nother experience that kind of shaped your beliefs. And even the Olympic team experience, right. That Which no longer exists, but there was an actual Canadian Olympic team for hockey at one point that Mike played for too. So maybe speak about that and just that journey and some of the things that shaped your belief and maybe some people along the way that were a part of it.
1: Uh, sure. Well, first I'll, um, I'll share an insight I had as you were speaking and, you know, I guarantee you, Bruce, um, you know, we'll get a kick out of that because that is the either intended or the, um, happy coincidental result of letting someone go and cutting them, right? Like, yeah at some point, not everyone can make the team, right? And, and so then the individual's journey takes over and you had perseverance and great for you. And then I thought to myself, you know, I had mentioned earlier that I had gotten an opportunity with Bruce Ray of the gate and I executed in that opportunity, but there's been other times where I got the opportunity and fell flat. For example, when I went to college and you know, so I wonder if that story for me was like, oh, I didn't get the opportunity or, you know, woe is me, poor me. Only if I got the opportunity, I could have done better. And, you know, I definitely put in the time uh, like you did too. Like I, they used to call me extra credit a little bit at college because I'd always be ri- riding the bike and Alaska uh, on the ice. And that was always me. I just had a really strong work ethic. I was just really yeah. passionate about learning and um developing new skills and yeah you were anyway, dangling
0: when i twisted my ankle when i was 18 you were out dangling on the ice at 10 a.m when i was out there doing drills trying to get yeah. back up to speed again
1: yeah i mean um that was just part of my whole my whole persona i just i was always scratching for extra ice wherever i could find it going back to when i was in prep school in ninth grade um I got uh, special access to our our in-house private school hockey rink, and I could go play during study um study hour instead of studying because my grades were uh, good enough, and that was amazing to play by yourself at eight o'clock at night. but anyway, um in college, oh, I broke my leg. it was November eleventh uh, nineteen ninety five and it was Remembrance Day, and that's how I remember it <laughs> and then. I missed the whole year. There was hope I might play again that year, but I hadn't even got my cast off by the time we finished our last game in the playoffs that year. I stuck around all year round, and to C- Bruce's credit, like um, I, I really wanted to stick around, but they let me stay. And very often they might have sent you home, but I stuck around. I did radio color commentary. Um, you know yeah. we would have met again along the way. Dude, that's an I. I- I totally forgot about that, but I did tons of color while I was sitting up
0: in the stands too. Yeah.
1: That was on fun. the radio.
0: That, and I think about that. That was a huge shaper of, of my, you know, ability to just speak, whether yeah. it be
1: presentations my, or doing this even my right mouth, now, you know, my mom used to say, and to this day, I clear my mouth because she says she would say, I mean, I could hear you on the radio and it sounds like there's marbles in your mouth. and every and every now and (laughs) and if it weren't that it was my dad saying i was skating like a pierogi but um so that's funny what comes back to you but so uh, that year i missed and then that summer i actually didn't start skating till august or so um july and um hockey camp in college was in in late august early september And I was on the first line. I was the top recruit from the, in the country. I was leading the league in scoring when I broke my leg on top first line. And, um, you know, practice was going okay. And they they put me into the first game and I just stunk, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and uh, the coach, how he was like, literally he dropped me a line next game. I stunk again. He dropped me a line next game. We went our next weekend trip. And then I stunk that game. I was on fourth line for the next two years. I didn't get a, a, another sniff. I didn't get another break until um, that. And so I got like a goal and four assists the first year. <laughs> I had 100 the year before. And, and you know, I, four years later, the guy who was first recruit for my team was uh, Chris Kunitz, who's won a bunch of Stanley Cups and like with the Pittsburgh Penguins. And, you know, so he made comparisons, which is a bad problem of mine. Of like, all right, well. <laughs> I guess that was supposed to be me, but you know, he's amazing. And he, he and, and he did everything he needed to, to have all the success he did. And obviously I didn't. Um, but I remember saying to my coach um, who I hated, like um, the same way you hated Bruce Thompson. Yeah. And, and um, I, I walked into the, his office that year at the end of the year, and I was starting to inch my way up. And like, he, you know, I was doing extra credit and he would come out and say, you'd see me dangling before practice. And he say, those are the, aren't the hands of a one goal scorer. I'm like, well then play me some more. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, you paid your dues more than anyone. I'm like, all right, so play me some more, you know, a couple flirts with playing more. Like he, uh, I got a, a shot at one game, but I was so out of shape that I was winded the whole time. So I, I was, I'm, I'm like, you're going to need to give me a couple games to get my legs back. You know? Yeah. But at the end of that year, um, I, I had already heard from Bruce Thompson, who actually advocated for me to go to this uh, Team Canada spring camp. It wasn't mm. the Olympic team, exactly. It's called the Men's National Program. But And so he already secured an invite to that camp. And it's just a spring invitational. Like, a lot of people could go if you had any kind of credentials. But he got me invited, and I told my coach at, at the, our end-of-season um, meetings, I was like, I think I'm going to leave. Um, I'm going to go to this college, uh, to this Team Canada camp. And um, if I make it, I'm I'm going to leave. And he told me, well, we can play you more when you come back next year. I promise we'll play you more. This was going into my senior year. And I remember I said to him, like, one my best friend in college that year benefited from my fa- failure to execute it. And he was a great player too, no doubt about it. Um, but there's an opening on the on the depth chart when... <laughs> He bought a fourth line and um he had like 30 points a point a game i said to my coach um how many points did, did um my friend have he goes uh 30 i'm like how many on the power play he's like 15 i'm like okay so he got 15 points in regular shift and he plays how many minutes per game all right how many points did i have he's like 11 i'm like how many on the power play he says zero so i got 11 points and i got how many um minutes price per game i said i'm outperforming him on five on five and so that was a, a light bulb for him at, in that moment um but i didn't trust that he was going to play me any, any more than he was was and when i went to spring camp and at team canada it was revelatory it was honestly the probably one of the best moments of my life because it was such a redemption and i I played at that camp like I played when I was 19 with you in in Mm -hmm. Newport Um, or those college camps or just dangling and skating and flying and confident and making Mm -hmm. friends and talking to everybody and feeling good. And someone, um, one of the coaches who um, now coaches in Nanchel says to me, he's like, how did you only get 10 points last year? And I said, ice time. But the yeah. truth is, it's more than just ice time. It's also ice time, ice time and confidence. And, um, you know, it's funny where confidence is born. You might expect it's born from getting ice time and having success. But that also is part of the program I'm developing, Rehabit. And, and when you have a hole in yourself that is unable to manufacture confidence in yourself outside of outside of influences, then you're always going to be subject to the circumstances you find yourself in. And that was my case. If I didn't get ice time, my analytical brain started analyzing, evaluating, contemplating all these outcomes, and I went to shit fast. If I was getting ice time and external confidence, I was at the top of my game relatively but was, fast. But in that case, it was
0: dependent on somebody else giving you the validation of like, you you are good enough yeah. to justify that ice time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is exactly how I intended our conversation to go because I knew we'd kind of weave in these old stories that You know, We've talked about these things numerous times. We've just never recorded it before. The idea of all these things that have shaped us to bring us to today, which of course we'll get to today um, by the end of this interview, but let's keep uh, going down that journey unless there's anything else you want to share around the, the Olympic experience. But obviously this is like timeline, like 98, 99 type thing to like early 2000s that I want to kind of dive into now or anything else you want to share about that experience from the Olympics? Olympic team perspective? Well,
1: I mean, (laughs) that spring was redemption on top of the world. And in fact, I used that event as a anchor in my practice for NLP um, tools, when neuro-linguistic programming is part of my rehabit program is, you know, to have a visual, uh, an emotional, uh, a physical model that you can map onto and recall and and embody again, because that 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 spring in two thousand in nineteen ninety eight was so powerful for me. It just felt like ah, oh, I you know, but that summer went by and then the fall camp came along. And I actually went down to school first. I started the year in Ferris and then I left that school and then went to the national team camp. And so it created this environment where they were waiting to see if I'd come back or not. And um, so when I was at the camp, I had some success. I did pretty well, maybe not quite as well as the spring. I definitely made the team, but there was a moment where, I actually got the sense that they tried on my psychology. In fact, we had a psychologist on team. Um, His name was, I can't remember his name, but he was the father of Jason Botterell, who played in Michigan and played a little bit in the NHL. And he was a psychologist and he was there to help us improve our psychology. And and before the Canadian national team, like we, we just worked out so hard and practiced so hard. It was just intense. It's like NHL camps, like, you know, yeah. and two a days. And it was like uh, college was a big jump from junior, but Team Canada was a big jump from college. And the psychology profile was such an eye-opener for me. At the time, I wasn't able to really pull the dots together. But I remember thinking back that they actually challenged me psychologically. They, I think they um, expressly benched me to see how I would respond. And before then, I didn't dawn on me that people would do that. <laughs> You know, I always thought you would get benched because you weren't playing well, or you were out drinking all night the night before or something. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, lo and behold, that mechanism of mine started playing in and I started playing worse. Um, And so I played my way off the team. So I played 10 games that year. I didn't get to travel overseas. And, you know, no regrets. I think I, I put in a good effort, but by the time That I was done. um, I thought, well, maybe I'll go back to school, and I wasn't sure I wanted to. I thought I was going to go play pro, but it turns out my coach at college, the guy who wasn't going to play me anyway, actually decided not to let me back, (laughs) not to bring me back to play. And um, you know, there was a lot of stories around that too. Like, namely, I didn't call them enough to let them know how I was doing. Like, I like I, I remember thinking like this. What are we, high school prom date? Like, <laughs> what? Got to check I'm, in. I'm doing my business here. I'll, I'll let you know if and when it ends or, you know, you'll figure it out. I'm coming back or not if I come back or not. Like, <laughs> I had didn't dawn on me I needed to check back in. You know, and then there was a few players back there that um, I also, I think, were offended that I had left and and also didn't want me back. Um, So I went and played pro that year. um, Didn't get much ice time that year. Really quickly, (laughs) I went to Wichita for three games um, while I was waiting for a contract in Europe because I wanted to go to England um, or Germany. I had in my head what I wanted to do. So I went back to Ferris, didn't play there, went to Wichita for three games, got three goals, was playing quite well, and didn't feel comfortable there and, and pulled the plug and left. And um, went back to Ferris, sat there for a little while, and then ended up in Mobile, Alabama, and East Coast League. And by the time I got there, it was almost like I broke my leg again. I just By the time I got a shot, I sucked, and I, I didn't play much for 52 games. I got in the 52 games I needed to get in in order to have 75% of an East coast league under my belt. So I could go to uh, England, which of course I never did. And again, there's another belief that I felt like I have to go play in England for some reason. So I have to be in the East coast league. So I have to get these 70, these 75% of these games. And so I just, you know, persevered and kept playing and kept playing in a situation that wasn't right for me. Maybe I would have forced a trade or something, but From there, just like five games there, five games here, five games there, and then it was over. And then I ended up playing with you senior hockey in Lucky Lake. And that's how we came back to being buds. Yeah. There's so many, um, like I'll I'll spare because I want
0: this to be about you here, but I'll talk about this in future solo episodes, just my own journey and my hockey career and, you know, the attachments that I had to my identity of like, either coaches projecting onto me or me having certain expectations of myself. And like, I remember just quickly when I was 20, I was supposedly told that I was one of two people that were on the short list of getting a scholarship at Omaha, Nebraska. And they ended up taking the other guy. And I remember mm-hmm. I fought that guy in my 18 year old year or something. I kicked his ass to... But um, anyways, I remember just feeling so dejected then too and thinking like, oh my God, everything that I've worked for, for these last four years was to get a scholarship and then it didn't happen. And then it just took me down this other path. And like, there's so many uh, triggering, like, you know, uh, events that, that built from that, that helped shape who I am today. So like, I'm grateful for all of it. But again, at the time, Devastating devastating, you know, self-worth was shot. My future vision of myself was shot, everything. And you talked about, um, like having a psychologist on the team, like that was Hockey teams didn't have psychologists and and mental coaches back then, you know, like that was probably the level you had to get to in order to have that come in. Right. It certainly wasn't something that was talked about in junior hockey. If it was, it was maybe a guy came in once or (laughs) I laugh about this because every time I hear this song, but like that Phil Collins song, when we used to lie on the ground and turn the lights off in the dressing room, Bruce used to put that on like that was about as much mindset work as we used to get into. It, it was kind of like <laughs> yeah. It was kind of like meditating before a, a game, but really it was intended on like just having that build up of the drum solo. It's more, we'll superstition. more superstition.
1: Was more superstition than mindset, yeah.
0: Yeah, so but what comes to mind for me is uh cuz maybe we'll we'll back off the hockey a little bit. Now we'll talk about how it led you down this path in the early 2000s. Because what I remember though, too, when I reconnected with you was that you were just finishing up your, your arts degree, right? So you, you went back to school um, through other means of academic scholarship, right? And then, and then got that degree. And that, to me, that was probably one of the most critical pieces to you ending up with going into the online world and writing and creating websites and that type of thing, hey?
1: Well, it turns out I ended up going to the same school in a matter of a roundabout way. Um, The NCAA had a program called the degree completion program. And it's just for people just like myself who left early to go play pro or whatever. And so you have to qualify. And my, of course my grades were good enough that I did. Um, It took me a year. Actually. I, We played, I think you might remember this. We were in Lucky Lake that year playing. And I was like, I was having fun. But I was like, what am I doing here? So I packed up (laughs) my car. I was like, I got it. Again, a story. I had a drive. I was like, I got to finish my degree. Like, if I don't finish it now, I'm never going to. So the only way I could think of it was like, go back to where I was um, and see what I can do. So there was a school called Kendall College in Grand Rapids. I went to Ferris State in Big Rapids. Michigan, wow, well, uh, central Western Michigan and, um, Ferris State ended up buying Kendall. So I actually ended up graduating from the same school I went to. Mm-hmm. Um, but the original degree I was in was called, um, visual communications, um, basically graphic design. And we had, uh, everything was digital shifting over to digital then, um, for the first time ever, really, it was a lot. My, my teachers were really old school designers. Um, but the computer and the internet, like this is 95, right? And so when I went back, it was um, 2000. And so I spent that year 2000 really scrambling and scrounging. I, I took one or two classes at Kendall and they're very expensive for out of state, like really expensive. Like our scho- my scholarship was worth something like 200,000 Canadian dollars. Because if you pay the out of state tuition, it's just astronomical. That's crazy. Yeah. And so I paid for two classes at Kendall, and then I went to a community college in Grand Rapids and got two more credits. I think they were just like, I can't remember. I transferred them in, and that got me to the point where I needed one more year worth the credits to graduate. And the whole time, like, I'm living off of ramen. I'm, uh, I think I was going <laughs> to food. I, I went to, I literally went to a food line soup kitchen the, type thing or soup like kitchen a, yeah, there's a thing, yeah there's a place in Saskatoon I'm trying to remember the specific name of it but got food from there I was living in this studio apartment downtown East Grand Rapids where it was like old like really run down and then writing this application for this grant I actually missed an application for another one that I was so devastated by like oh I was like I I, I forgot it was the different day and I came in the next day I'm like here you go and like <laughs> deadline was yesterday I'm like What? Give me a break. I tried to fast talk my way out of it. And they're like, no, but thankfully I got the degree completion program. And then the next year came back and I had the full boat again. So my classes were paid for and I had room and board. And, and so I was able to finish the degree. That one was a different degree. It was more multimedia. We did 3d work and a lot of website, a lot of programming, um, a lot of animation. And yeah, so when I, I finished that, a lot of video editing, video production. And, and, and so if it were not for that, I would, would have potentially not been down this road. That was 2002 when I graduated. Yeah. And the company I had coming out of the gate was Five Sides. And it had a logo that was the exact same as uh, one website, except it, only, it was missing a chunk. <laughs> Which is basically like the, um, the Trivial Pursuit logo. <laughs> Yeah. a little pie chart but Six it wasn't much of a logo cents. but it's yeah. funny like that the spectrum and and that sacred geometry is still plays um still plays a large role in every design I do pretty much like I'm I'm really fascinated by the sacred geometry and um yeah uh but yeah that's uh that's what got me into it and um and then I came back and played more senior hockey with you for a few more years yeah, and that was like early 2000s then, so like
0: 2003, 4, 5 type thing. I think we still played senior hockey and like for anybody that is listening, watching this that has no clue what we're talking about, like senior hockey is not like over 55. We're talking like, you know, 17-year-olds up to 50-year-olds that are playing organized hockey in Saskatchewan in towns with 300 people where they pay what they called imports or like their hired guns to come in and kind of bolster a local team. Right. So you'd have a town of 300 people that had enough young hockey players to fuel a team. And then you would bring in these like hired guns. So Mike and I were, you know, two hired guns at the time. And man, I like that that doesn't exist anywhere else on the planet, you know, like thinking back about that, like we make a couple hundred bucks a game and it was paying for, well, it was basically paying for drinks at the bar, <laughs> pretty much. It wasn't really paying for a rent, but um, that was a good time. Um, but right, right around that time though, too, I know early 2000s type things. So you so you started Five Sides and you're doing this stuff. And I can't remember if you were taking on clients or anything at that point, or if you're already diving into the blogging side of things. I think that was around the time that you went to Korea, right? And and for me, I came out of university with a marketing degree and just went straight into a sales job and was hitting the phones and driving around and going to networking events. And that was kind of both of our paths for a couple of years there, right? And I remember you started to plant some seeds in my head around that time too, where there were some books. And I don't remember if the E Myth came out at this time or if it was just something that you read and you were like, "Hey, you should read this." And I was like, "All right, I guess so." And the Four Hour Work Week. And do you remember what what other kind of um, you know, books in particular were influential for you early on in those stages where you were thinking about like how to build a business around your experience that you gained through
1: university? Oh, well, you know, it's funny. There were a few and you mentioned them uh, from books about building business, E-Myth and 4-Hour and Week. And there probably wasn't a whole lot more at that time in that area. I was focused more on like quantum mechanics and astrophysics, and <laughs> I remember so you I spe- talking about that stuff
0: back then, and me just going, "Yeah, I man. spent a lot." Wasn't letting of, like, it in little, yet.
1: Those senior hockey years was a lot of hockey, a lot of weed, a lot of guitar, and a lot of just blowing my own mind. You know, so I would do all three at the same time if possible, while sketching and uh, playing um, Tony Hawk on PlayStation. A tough life for a 26 year old, if you can get it Uh tough work, if, if you can get it. But I think we spent two years like that, but you know, there was uh, the probably the most influential books for me in that moment was Eckhart Tolle. Um, and yeah. I read it really early. I hang on. I just want to make, see if I'm a liar. Cause that's my recollection. Um, I think I read referring to right. The power now was the first book I read. I can't remember who um, recommended it to me, and um, yeah, 2004 it came out. So yeah, definitely. And that's what really started to. You wouldn't think that's a book about business, um, but for me, it was like if if it went four hour work week, the E Myth and Power Now. Those might be the three because it kind of went from like, hey, how can I have a lifestyle business? You know how can I build a business functionally that I'm not a slave to, and you know how can I feel good about myself and how how can I make an impact in the world? And that's what was driving me then is like I want to be happy, right? (laughs) Like I don't want to build a billion dollar business, although I would have aspirations in that area. Like, well, maybe this business could be huge. I don't know, but when i roped you into the space i was basically thinking like dude you you're on a track that has no leverage points and i was all about that leverage like for our work weeks about creating passive revenue streams oh that's another one is the passive income um i think it's um i think it's called multiple streams of of income um yeah. and it really guided me towards thinking about the the blogging back then, which is really why um, I wanted you, I was pitching you to join me as a business partner in the website development company. Because you obviously you're doing sales and I was like, all right, good, you can do sales. You also had a lot of skill in managing the areas. You complemented my deficiencies well. I recognized that early, like typos or or book work. (laughs) And so the power now, I think I was the one that tied it all together for me and um, really got me on this idea of like, you know, how can I change my life up? That's when I started this master cleanse. I wanted to fast. I wanted to challenge myself. I wanted to um, change the way I was looking at things. This This is why cannabis became so important to me, not because I was just necessarily distracting myself from life but I was able to actually look at life in a different way and I was just thinking about this today I mean how much has changed in those 15 years how many people actually now respect cannabis and psychedelics as as a conduit to not only treating um, you know depression anxiety um, but also as an access point to peak performance Um, so you can actually achieve an experience that you can model. For example, my experience with the national team, I had a moment where someone said something and I felt it and I could remember me doing it and it was just clear as day and bright and bold and beautiful. But a lot of people never have that experience. And so one thing that drugs can do is provide an experience that um, it might be hard to acquire otherwise. You're not going to become a professional hockey player playing for the national team um, in, a, in an evening in your living room and then acquire a new view on the world like that, you know? Um, yeah. So I've, I've often said, I think everyone should do drugs. I think they should be legal. Every drug should be legal. We should finance um, instead of incarcerating, we should be financing the small percentage of people that develop a problem with it, get them the support they need to understand how to use it in a meaningful way. Um, much more beneficial to society on every level. Um, On that point, though, we've had lots of discussions about this over the years because I
0: can say that in the early 2000s was kind of like the first time that I was ever even introduced to. I shouldn't say that. I think, I think I smoked weed, mom and dad, if you're listening, I smoked weed for the first time.
1: (laughs) And I tried many, many
0: times. Like 97, (laughs) I think. Yeah, 97, 98, somewhere in there. And then not again until probably like 2003 or something. And in both cases, I ended up like, the first time I fell asleep within like five minutes and just whatever, like it just, it just put me to sleep. The second time I was like hunched over a toilet for hours And then, you know, I think I've maybe tried it two or three times since then. I've had a very similar experience. So I've got this idea in my head that like drugs don't agree with me. They're bad. and, and, And it's fine. It is what it is. But what I'm getting to, though, is that everything that you just spoke of there, though, if I was to transport myself back to 2003, mind, like who I was back then, I'd think like that's crazy talk, Mike. You're talking about drugs, man. Drugs are illegal. <laughs> you know what I mean? And now yeah. I'm finding myself listening to podcasts about people's experiences with ayahuasca and I'm going,
1: I think I need to try this.
0: So but it's even like, like even MDMA, years, like
1: we, you know? we were taking ecstasy back then and we weren't having peak experiences. I mean, we were, but like now when I look at the drugs back then, there was a lot of just like uh, we're partying. There's certainly a lot of that. But now, when yeah. I would consider a drug like uh, LSD, ayahuasca, even MDMA, even um, did I say mushrooms? But nope. you can microdose them for sure. But even if you macrodose them, if you have an intention for that experience beyond like <clears throat> dance and party and getting laid, like but actually you're gonna go on a journey. <laughs> and explore where it takes you in the realm of consciousness and what it reveals to you about who you are and how you see the world. Um, Like it's, it's beautiful. Now there's certainly room for (laughs) like, rock on like party a little, have fun. And that's part of what I think is critically important and missing. Everyone's taking themselves so seriously these days, myself included, perhaps, you know, you you need to have fun. Um, But you do need to recognize there's risks with everything and, um, what I tell you, what I continue to tell you about your drug experience is that the first five times you chewed tobacco, you probably threw up, but you kept on trying it. And the first yeah. 10 times you drank alcohol, you probably threw up, but you kept on trying it. You just, you're a quitter. You're a drug quitter. You need to yeah. persevere. <laughs> and yeah, so you know, with-
0: it's been the journey for sure. And that's why I say openly right now that like, I know the next 10 years of my life will be experiencing some of these things. And you know, like the ayahuasca thing in particular, I like I'm I'm literally just going to school on it right now. Where at one point it's just like, nope, not a chance. That's not what I do. You know, other people do that. Now I'm like, huh. So you know, uh, open your mind up to a new alternate reality that you can't see without going down that journey. Okay. I'm into that. Like that's that's the driver now for me. Right. It's like
1: seeing things differently. Well you're gonna you're going to benefit from the dramatic difference in experience in ayahuasca. I've never taken ayahuasca. I too want to. It um, says Most of the time you take what's given, you don't know what it is. The strains yeah. are so variable um, and the strains are really important for who you are as a person, not only biochemically, but also psychologically. So there's like these three legs, this tripod of influences of the experience you'll have with cannabis. And if you're not aware of that, I mean, I wasn't when I was in 2002, you know, playing guitar and reading quantum physics. I was taking what I got. But, you know, in the last 10 years living in Vancouver, I go to the store and I have a menu of 50 different strains with, like, user experiences of how they impact you and the cannabinoid breakdowns. And, like, you know, it's a whole different story. Um, So choosing the right strain and the right delivery vehicle will make... Cannabis use a little bit more like ayahuasca, but well, ayahuasca is a, such a game changer. Like if you're not smoking, I mean, and you're, it's, it's not like a little, you know, you're not dipping a toe, you're going full boat into the, another realm. And, yeah. um, <laughs> yeah. so I do want to do that one day myself. Uh, maybe if this show ever gets to the 1000th episode and you're hosting Joe Rogan, we can all do it together. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm saying th- this show will get to uh, you know beyond that, but that will be one of the things that I'll talk about over over the years. Is hey, my truth or bull?
1: Did I just speak with limiting um, belief? You did. I just spoke, you did. Speak I did with limiting belief because it's
0: it, it is something that I've created as an intention for this. It's part of the reason why in the uh, closing outro of this show, you'll hear me talk about be grateful, be curious, and be brave. And be brave is part of that. It's literally like Sky's the limit, man. Who do I want to have on this show? Obama? Awesome. I'm gonna have Obama on my show in the future. You know what I mean? So hell yeah, man. Let's 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 create that intention. At some point, we will go and do ayahuasca with Joe Rogan.
1: <laughs> All right. We'll see well, what to- it which by the way, I want to say, and I've been wanting to say since you said it on our call before this interview was um your little tag line there. I love it. Be um grateful, be curious, be brave, right? Yeah. Um and so there's a, a flagship piece in Rehabit that I'm calling Emote Control. And um, basically it's to, um, and, and the more accessible name is how to feel better. Um, but controlling your emotions or at least recognizing your emotions is so important. No one teaches it. School's a joke. Like these are the things we need to be learning at school. Um, like You know there's a spectrum of these emotions and they categorize and in my life you know doing um you know search engine optimization and latent semantic indexing of any topical um any set of uh, topics has got me along these lines of just sort of categorizing things and so I set out to like all right I wanted to get to know like what are my emotions like what's what are the range of the emotions? And in my experience of learning about emotions, uh, there's a lot of great teachers out there like Esther Hicks has this, um, uh, this um, um, persona, uh, Abraham Hicks, and she has these, uh, a lot of talk along these lines, Joe Dispenza talks along these lines. So many people talk along these lines, but on the scale um uh, of emotions from the worst one you can feel to the most elated one you can feel and everywhere in between there's naturally a middle and uh, Bruce Lipton um and 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 Dr Hawkins Dr Hawkins rather have an energy associated to each emotion and in the middle is um is you might think neutral all right makes sense but it's actually um either the one in the middle or the one on one notch from 0 to 1 on positive and that's curiosity and curiosity is a great place to go to when you're in a bottom emotion because it's neutral it's not a big leap like i got to feel better you know like i i just i yeah. just i need to i should be like you know, I'm, I'm happy, <laughs> you're affirming all of these things, but it's hard to leap out of that spiral you're in. So curiosity is amazing. And then gratitude is much higher on, on the scale, but it's also a really great access point. Um, because um, if you can get curious, in fact, there's this little technique I have that I, I think it's called the wait method. And I go, wait, uh, where am I triggered? And then as soon as you uh, get into that space, and you ask that question, that question by definition is curiosity. Curiosity is asking a question. So if you can get in the space where it's like, hmm, what's that smell? Or, hmm, I hear something. What is that? That immediately draws you out of whatever um, negative emotional pattern you're in, into curiosity. And then if you can leap to gratitude from there, you're on your way. And so those two, to me, are the two major ladders of leveling up your emotion in any one place you might be. Yeah, I'd never thought
0: of that, actually, in the hierarchy, the ladder of like, it really is kind of like, be brave, face that fear, the thing that's the limiting belief, whatever, right? Be curious about possibility, and then be grateful for whatever it is and whatever it then created that becomes new, right? Whatever that new reality is. And I know... Danielle Grant, who's uh, a mindset mentor and somebody that I've had in my programs, she talks about the three questions that you should ask yourself in all situations of that where there may be fear involved and you need to be brave. It's like, what am I believing to be true? Why do I believe this to be true? And what do I want to choose to believe differently? That's it. If you ask yourself those three questions around every single situation that comes up, you can start to program yourself to condition to think differently. Right. And it's obviously a very basic exercise, but it does kind of map to what um, we just talked about there, which is like step one is just be brave to face the thing that you maybe can't even see is holding you back from living your greatest life. You know? And that's part of the bravery is to just say, I don't know, or I don't understand. It's kind of like me with drugs, right? It's, It's like, My experience is I get sick. Okay, that's a belief. That's a limiting story. There, I see all kinds of proof and and published scientific journals and people that I respect that are going down this journey. And now that society says that it's legal, I'm starting. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just thinking back to the years and years of like, why did I believe that to be true, that drugs are bad back in the day? It was because I had a, a, a very condensed mindset that was like, I'm a hockey player. I'm a hockey player. Like seriously, man, for like the better part of a decade, that was how my brain worked. It was like, I'm a hockey player. <laughs> what else do you do? Well, I play hockey. You know, fuck, I burned six years of, uh, tuitions in university to prove it with like barely a degree coming out of that thing, you know, because I was defining myself as a hockey player in my mid twenties without a scholarship or not being drafted.
1: <laughs> well, you were a hockey player and a very good one. Um, And, you know, the the paths we're on are beset with many obstacles. So I went through a journey with drugs in that mindset as well. Um, I had some experience when I was younger, 18, but then uh, 17, 16. But then when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, all through college, not really. It didn't do much. A little bit of mushrooms in college, a little bit of pot here or there. but. When I finished school and finished hockey, and I went back down and got my finished my degree, my roommate smoked a lot of weed, and I was, and he wanted to play guitar, and I was like, "Yeah, why not?" So is that is that Joel? I'm, no, no, no. Joel was my roommate in Ferris when I was playing hockey. This roommate was oh, okay. just the guy I just the guy I met down there, <clears throat> and I ended up making gotcha. meeting a really really good buddy who was good buddies with another a total pothead. And so I just fell into this sort of, you know, it was an art school and there was, you know, a guy playing guitar, needed a roommate, nice, terrible at guitar, has lots of weed. I'm like, yeah, we'll live together. And <laughs> I, made a con- I made a conscious choice. I will smoke a lot of weed and I will play a guitar. And so out of that was born, you know, like I got my guitar right back there, like. I'm so grateful for that. And I spent hours and hours and hours playing, just lost in, in the process and the practice and the joy of the energy of just learning. Now, my favorite thing about a guitar is just like, there's always a little victory right around the corner where you're like, ah, nailed that note. Ah, I got that chord. Ah, I got that progression. Ah, I got that song. Oh, I, you know, I just love that about it. And I always used to say, and I still do, that um, my favorite drug is learning. And the reason why is because the dopamine hit is so amazing and we have the best drug set in our body. So if you can actually have that emote control, you can trigger these, these euphoric states without the drugs. The drugs are just a shortcut to get in there, which by the way, I'll drop um, some really great um, books these days, like Stealing Fire. It's very, very popular. Um, but the co-author of that book he has written a ton of great books um, on peak performance. I can't remember his name right offhand, but you know, there was something uh, about the, the, what you were just talking about Trevor that I wanted to loop back to. Could you remind me what you finished on there? You're a hockey player and you. Yeah.
0: Just the open-mindedness or or lack thereof earlier on. And my view of um, things that were unknown. I think that was kind of the, main context of it, of like what I believe to be true, oh, yeah. why I believe that to be true. Any of this triggering, any thoughts?
1: A little bit. It's triggering <laughs> the, it's, it's triggering the recollection that you uh, can post-produce and edit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's no post-producing this stuff. Episode one of the interviews are just going to flow, man. It's just going to flow.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's a, it's a journey and, um, you know, right now in Slovakia, they're very um, anti-cannabis. The Czech Republic's a different story. So when I'm here, I I don't have any cannabis at all. And I'm not drinking at all. Like I'm straight stone cold sober, (laughs) navigating the trials and tribulations of uh, COVID in Slovakia, um, which I I find out to be a blessing, quite frankly, um, because there is a certain aspect of drinking and drugs and working and sex and Anything that can form an addiction uh, is is a distraction. It's a tool to fill a void um, or to avoid avoid <laughs> uh, yeah. avoid. And so it's nice to not have that. And and so like now I'm working on rehab. It I'm, I'm filling the void with like I was up at three thirty this morning, <laughs> um, and I started my first meditation at four a.m. And um, I don't. I don't have a um, a long log line. This is my little journal on um, wins. Um, and so I journal in here every day what I how I won that day in different practice windows. And, um, you know, some days I get up and some days I don't. But my intention is to every day. And I'm assuming one day I will. It feels to me like that's the way I can get to where I want to get to um, with all this rather than giving myself some mandate that like a line in the sand, your life is better, you are now a meditator at five in the morning. It just feels impossible to fulfill that expectation. So that's been really part of this journey I'm on now is to discover how behaviors change, when and how people seek change in their lives and lifestyles, um, and the tools we can use to facilitate those changes on really, really profound levels, but also small ones like you know, I want to be more present with my daughter or big ones like, um, you know, let's move to Sulaquia in the middle of a pandemic.
0: <laughs> well, that's uh, actually maybe a good opportunity for us to speak about, like, you know, our early entrepreneurial business years up until now and kind of what's driving you and what you're doing in your project right now, because... You know, there's another line in that outro that I have as a part of my show, which is trust that you're exactly where you're supposed to be right now. And I know if we look back over 15 years of, you know, I'm this sales guy that's on this path of selling semi trucks for the rest of my life and making 200 grand a year, but hating every moment of it to having this guy, Michael Askey, come back into my life and go here, read this four hour week work week book and me going, what the, you know, like, this, this exists in the world. You could travel. And then, dude, I remember reading um, a book and I always forget about it. I actually got to go buy it again. Cause I don't have it physically anymore, but remember the lonely planet guidebooks that you used to take with you, the physical books, there's a, uh, an autobiography written by that guy and his wife, where they talk about how they started the business. And then their journey of, of like traveling from England down through like, um, Kandahar and like Afghanistan and into Southeast Asia and into Australia. And then they created this business and it's kind of like the early points of like travel blogs. And then what became now, like, you know, all these other things like Expedia and everything else. It's like, it's crazy to think, but there was a driver for that for me too. I remember reading that book and going, I want to live that life. I want to live that life. I will live that life, you know? But at first it was, I want to live that life. And then it was, I will live that life. And now it's a constant reminder for me, too, to say, I am living that life. I am living that life. I'm already there. I'm already on the beach, you know, even if I'm not physically there. But the idea of intention and just creating that um, that space for yourself to be comfortable exactly where you are. Like you said, you're in Slovakia right now, which is not a third world country, but it's certainly not, you know, the United States or Canada either, right? Like there's maybe behind it a little in a few ways and I know. You know,
1: it's been in a, a lot of ways. We're dead yeah. last in air pollution, dead last in the mm-hmm. EU. Yeah. Um, but you know, they have all the creature comforts of every uh, of elf I you know it sounds derogatory, but first world countries, uh, US or Canada, advanced um, countries. Um, so they have everything, but they but they're also still suffering uh, from a social mindset, from a social belief structure. It's yeah. very obvious. It reminds me of being in Korea you know, as you probably know, Korea war was in the fifties. And so the products of the survivors of post-Korean war coming from that separation of the Korean peninsula, uh, create a really dramatic social, um, shift from the seven-year-olds, the 30-year-olds and the 15-year-olds. And they all, yeah. 15-year-olds were like, oh, Westernized. And the 50-year-olds were all like, totally bogged down in the past and 30 year olds were just in between lost a bit and I feel like that's the true for Slovakia right now as well they're still struggling yeah. with their post-communist roots you know it was only 1990 I think when they broke away Czechoslovakia became Czech Republic and Slovakia but it's yeah. going back to the intention You know, it's really important. And and thank you for reminding me. Um, There's another flagship um, piece in Rehabit. Um, This is the uh, prototype. This one says lies, L-I-I-Z. And the three I's stand for intention, uh, inspiration, and initiation. And again, that goes back to the scientific prayer. So intention is your visualization. The inspiration is your emotionalization and the uh, initiation is the actualization. So have a picture, um, call up an emotion and then feel it in your body and then take steps in that direction. So this chapter here is a mango orchard in Costa Rica. Yep. I don't know if you can, that's upside down and it says, but I got it. Yeah. It says homestead on it. Mm. And so there are seven of these. I started with 12. And so the idea is that this journal that I'm designing, and this is based off of other of people's work. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants largely in my work, but there's another one here. And this one says um, graceful family. And this one is a woman you know, coaching or talking to another woman. And that is my anchor to my wife feeling fulfilled in her career and therefore us in our family as well. Um, This one is hollow van. (laughs) Uh, That's a sweet van, man. It is a sweet, sweet van. And I won't get into the hollow part um, (laughs) other than to say that it goes with the other hollow in my my deck here. This one is Ola Surf. So this one reminds me that I want to be an athlete. I want to get back to being an athlete yep. and I want to get back to being in the water. Plus I want to use those hydrofoils. <laughs> Dude, I
0: bought a stand up, a blow up, stand up paddleboard just to get back onto the water and start working on balance and stuff. Just, just to train myself, you know, knowing that there's,
1: there's no well, way. You're, act- <laughs> you're actualizing. That's part of yeah. the actualizing. So totally. this one is a rap party. And what this one's teaching me is that I want to be part of a team and I want to complete a major project, right? Mm. And so what is that a feature film? I don't know, something. This one here is open mic. And so that's that's <laughs> me playing my guitar in front of people and singing like I yeah. like I want them to hear me. <laughs> is anybody watching? And listening can't tell Mike's a bit of a wizard word wizard. <laughs> and, and, oh, and I forget, this is going to be an audio podcast. So I'm not describing this one. says hollow And so the visualization component, like I, I've got a vision for how to actually create these visual stimuli, but this project, then you got these seven things. And then I got this journal and in this, I call it prescribing. Um, yeah. So you go and you draw a script of that scene. You write it out as if you're writing a script for a story for somebody. And then there's this book's broken into like 40 pages per section. And then you rewrite it the next day and rewrite it the next day. Of course, you got seven of them. So it could take months and months to fill this up. But the idea is that your vision becomes so clear to you and that you can call out emotions that feels like smells that you can smell in the vision. And then, like you just did, if you can take steps to um, actualize it, get a paddle board. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, Im- imagine yourself paddling when you're doing yoga or something. Yep. Right. Well, even um, having the kids on
0: the board, like I, they were playing around with it in the basement suite here, which is right behind me right now. But um, they hopped up on it and they grabbed the 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 oar and stuff, and they were just so excited about it. You know, and like I know. Like we got a hot tub last year, a year ago, because the intention was for us to actually go to Costa Rica, we should be there already, you know, and then coronavirus hits and the world locks down and we were just like, "Yeah, let's just wait a couple of years, which is fine. Exactly. Going back again, like it's exactly what's supposed to happen right now. This is totally happening for a reason, but that was one of the other things seeing the kids on the board. I was like, I'm going to start to create this love of the water. And getting the hot tub was part of It's like they shut down the local pool, no more swimming lessons. We had the kids booked in swimming lessons a year ago this time, and they couldn't go. Like they're not learning how to do laps in our hot tub, but I see both kids now dunking themselves under the water and laughing, you know, like that's stage one of learning how to love being in the water, right? Mm, It's got to start with the very first step. So there's a lot of that happening, but I love those, uh, for anybody that's just listening, Mike was holding up these these cards that were related to um, a journal, essentially. That's you know creating that vision and that intention, and th- those visuals are really good. And I like that you're giving them your own spin on names and stuff too. That obviously <laughs> fits well into how you do everything.
1: As well, well, and, and there's a there's some instruction that goes along with it. They're, they're basically just photos, right? So maybe um, some of your listeners would have heard of something called Mind Movies. So back when Mind Movies first came out, I was just I want to do that. They're what they're doing isn't a good enough, and they've they've improved it a bit, but they're basically just a slide deck. You know, um, of pictures um, that it's just a mood board, a vision board where you can piece on the board pictures, and that's all these are for you. Anyone who's listening is, you know, just come up, find a picture online that resonates for you that can that can aid you in getting into the emotional space so that you can actually get on that little ladder from visualization to emotionalization to actualization. And they're actually I don't know if you noticed, but they're they're the size of a checkbook um, and which and the size of a phone basically. And so, um, I want to carry that around in my eye, in my phone case. And so on the back of each card, there'll be little cheat sheet, little trigger words to help me call up that visual and that emotion. So for me, this is is emerging and like, you want me to start touching on what I'm doing now, but the project's called Rehabit. There's plenty of yeah, aspects let's, to it. Let's dive, let's
0: dive straight into that right now, because Mike, I just realized like I've got 2006 To today that I still want to talk about. So we're going to do a whole nother interview because we're going to run out of time on this one. But today let's talk, like, let's wrap things for today to talk about um, rehab it. Let's dive into it and
1: talk about the vision of it. Okay. Uh, Sounds good, but I need to um, quickly think what's between 2006 and today, hmm, 2008, we opened one website. And two- I'll tell you. Yeah, it's two. Yeah. It's one website. It's all that
0: experience. The master cleanse you going to Costa Rica, um, 2008, to 2009, where we didn't really even talk at all. Hardly sport fan connect the Olympics going to Hawaii in 2012 and surfing for three weeks. You handing me dispense this book in 2013, the habit of being yourself me opening it five years later. Traffic and conversion conference we went to in San Francisco and the shape of how that impacted us from a digital marketing perspective, LinkedIn the Leads becoming what it did. 2018 to 2021 with your family, your mom, your dad, your brother. Huh. Trump.
1: Yeah. You're, all of that yeah. is Trump, Trump. Like, <laughs> like, no way. And, we can't talk and about that's something.
0: why I say like, there's no way we're going to talk about all this stuff in the next 20, like 15 minutes.
1: No, so, we, we can even we'll talk about one more. <laughs> we couldn't even talk about one more of those things, but I will touch on one as a bridge to rehab it, and that is um, from one website we were building website. We had a website development company together, and my idea, maybe unbeknownst to Trevor, but I think I benounced them as much as I could, where I wanted to basically. Abstract myself out. I mean, one of the first books I gave you was E Myth. I didn't want to be the conventional entrepreneur. I kind of wanted you to launch this business for Trevor, and I could go and surf, and he would run the business, and I would end up being a minority partner. He would be the majority, and it'd be his business, and I'd own 10%. That's what I kind of thought might happen. Before we got there, you know, we started deciding to go our separate ways, but I had in the meantime launched the Master Cleanse, and it was It was along the lines of feeding this four-hour work week. Like, I had this idea of Freedom 35. There was this um, retirement plan in Canada called Freedom 55. I was like, fuck that. I want to retire way sooner. I was 33 or 32 or something at the time. And I was like, by 35, I'm moving to Costa Rica, and I'm going to learn to surf. And by 35, I did. Um, so talk about setting intentions um, likewise Trevor like when I moved to Spain I found a spot in Spain where the surf looked good I found a town I, I zoomed in I took. Four, I, saw, I, I had it built in my head what that was going to be and then it, it became and that's happened over and over and over in life that you got to actually Trevor. take that step Hi, Hi, <laughs> I'm doing an interview right now and we're recording it so oh, working from home and um, rehab, it. I'll, I'll come back to tying that in, but rehab, it's about self, family, community, society, and these integral, in, integral parts, these holistic parts. And so the life I'm trying to recreate for myself now and reintend is about how to actually still be present with what comes up, right? Like, and not have those moments of like, perfection uh you know disrupted the call is no longer valuable or something like that right like shooting her out of here yeah um so that's that's part of the challenge and i love it i actually kept her in one of my youtube videos i posted recently (laughs) i was just like that's what happened so that's what's in totally totally man and
0: that's um in fact that's one of the other intentions i'm creating for this too is that yes i'll set myself up in an environment so like Make sure that it's quiet and the lighting's good and the audio's good and all that kind of stuff. But, like, whatever happens, happens. My kids come running in in the middle of the interview with Joe Rogan. So freaking be it, man. And, I and anybody like that. that would, yeah, and anybody that would get or an ayahuasca conversation or whatever, but anybody that, that would be insulted by it or whatever. Like, that's that world I feel left us behind or, or was left behind a year ago. Right. I still think of that that guy's interview where his kid comes in (laughs) in a little roller, you know, and he literally puts his hand on the kid's head and just like pushes it down. But that was like the catalyst moments of like what was about to become normal, which is people coming in, like every meeting that we have internally with our company, like somebody's kids talking or crying or something in the background. And, you know, for a while, you could kind of see, you know, leadership, I guess you'd call it like more senior people in the company executives that would you know kind of frown on it and like, let's figure it out. But then eventually it was like, oh, we need to help our people figure this out. And we need to become adaptable to say, this is normal now. I don't care if you work for a bank or if you're just an entrepreneur that's hopping on a webinar, like
1: that's the yeah. reality. Or, or you're live on MSNBC. Like I, so many times I, I see a talking head interviewing someone and their kids rolling by or <laughs> it's yeah. cool. So anyway grace is named grace for gratitude and to help me remember and so it's it's a really great reminder and so i just honest to god she's she's my easiest quickest way into presence and gratitude so i i i don't, I, I generally don't miss an opportunity to reconnect in that energy as soon as she's in my presence so freedom 35 allowed me to quit Uh, Working basically. I moved to Costa Rica and I had this website, the Master Cleanse, passive revenue perfect storm, very much in line with everything we've talked about today. And I milked that cow for five years at least and um, didn't really nurture it. You know, definitely have uh, some regrets on how much more it could have been. You know, I say regrets with an asterisk um, because, you know, intellectually, I, I don't think regrets is the right way to go. But I still have some emotion around it. Like, ah, uh, like I could have been so much more. Kind of like how I feel about hockey too. Um, yeah. But it, it, it was the perfect thing to bring me to where I am now. And there was a lot of ups and downs and rollers and learners and, along the way. And in the end, where I'm at now is uh, there's actually a, a master cleansing brand. And um, in the master cleansing brand, uh, the newest cleanse we're producing is called the lifestyle cleanse. And the lifestyle cleanse dovetails and launches Rehabit. And so Rehabit is a life-changing system. And um, certainly there's lots of tools out there to change on, on cha- and books and resources on people who've changed their lives and how they might suggest you go about changing your life. But my approach is that it's a lifelong membership. Like I want to have, um, talk about lifetime value. I want to have my members stay with us for life um, because life is always changing. And you got a new set of changes coming up around the corner just by the time you've settled into the last <laughs> crisis you survived and changed through. You have a brand new one to deal with, whether it's a passing of their parent, which I've recently experienced twice, or a, forecl- of a, a, a business failing, or a foreclosure, or a bankruptcy, or a divorce, or an illness, or a diagnosis, or a changing a job or changing careers, or having a kid. These common life events are are common for a reason in that they're universal. We all experience them, at least the majority of them. And so the idea is like, how do we develop a set of tools to change, to navigate these changes um, a little bit more gracefully? And so it was born out of my need to change because the the tools I had that brought me to where I was just weren't cutting it anymore. The way I looked at myself, the way I interacted with my family and my work, um, you know, they got me so far. I I do pretty well as a consultant and i built some businesses that have sold for six figures and, you know, never a grand slam, but, you know, a couple home runs and a whole bunch of doubles. I got gap power. (laughs) I'm really excited about it. um, And I'm nervous about it. Um, And I think that's a good sign because it's challenging me. Um, I'm certainly outside of my comfort zone. I'm, I'm, you know, there's app deploying. I'm, 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 scrambling a little bit. I managed to be able to downsize, let go of my clients, capitalize on some COVID grants. Like s- things have seemed to uh, conspire to create this opportunity for me to do this right now. And quite frankly, it feels like I have to do it. Like it, it really does. I won't share all the details about my personal journey, but I'll just say this, that um, like all of you, I have challenges. Some of them um, you know, seem overwhelming at times. And so I'm seeking um, a community and uh, um, resources and um, a muse, a passion that I can dig into and actually have that rap party like on my, my Visualize board there where I build a team. Maybe I'm not the leader all the way through. I don't know, but I wanted to have weight. Um, And I don't know how it'll get to where it's going to go, but I want it to bring me into a creative space more than a technical space. And it's allowing me to do that right now. So I'm really excited about it. And um, Trevor's going to be in my first class, um, like on his first interview. um, And I keep Postponing when I'm going to send out that invite, Trevor, because I I want it to have enough there that you will actually engage with it a little bit. Let's dive further
0: into that in part two of our interview, because like we already talked about, there's a lot of stories and little fuses that kind of make up the journey that got us both to this place and where that inspiration for rehabit came from. And obviously we could spend probably a good half an hour just discussing the details of it. But I'll wrap on this though, Mike, because I wanted to, it's Everything is intentional right now. I wa- I wanted to just say it's crazy how this happens, but like I know exactly why this is all happening. It's because I'm creating the space to be able to learn and to consume and stuff. For the longest time, I've been pushing away podcasts. Like I'm like, nope, no new ideas. I don't want to hear what anybody else is talking about. Let me just go create instead of consuming. And that's a whole other topic we can talk about. But in doing research for this podcast and then this first interview with you and how to be a better interview and what. What kind of questions to ask, I was diving into Tim Ferriss's stuff. And one of his uh, feature interviews on his YouTube channel is with Brene Brown. And he asked Brene Brown, he actually framed it like this. He says, so first of all, let me tell you, he says, my girlfriend asked me this morning who my guest was going to be. And I said, Oh, it's Brene Brown. And she was like, jaw on the floor, like Brene Brown. And he's like, yeah. And then he said, he ran into another a woman in the lobby of his building and same kind of reaction, right? It's like, oh my God, you're interviewing Brene Brown. So he asked her, he says, why do you think that is? And she's like, I have no idea. And that was kind of the end of it. And he's like, okay, well, let me reframe this. He goes, is there anything that comes up for you that like makes you feel like your story or your, you know, the way that you approach things is different, that kind of triggers in people. She goes, no, you know what? I do know what it is. She says, it's because of the science and the proof and all of that stuff of what I've done as a scientist. And of course, the popularity of her top five TED talk that is about vulnerability. But she said, the thing that I think makes people like jaw drop and be like, oh, amazing Brene Brown is because she tells the real truth. And she speaks about it in her own perspective, right? Like Brene Brown, she's literally said right there, she's like, this shit's hard. Like being a mom, being a a wife, being a, 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 thought leader, being somebody that's trying to, you know, stay at the top of their game and constantly learn and share what they're learning and inspire other people. She said, it's exhausting and it's hard and it's messy and it sucks a lot of days. And most, most of the time it's, it's like, it's easier to just grab a glass of wine or a beer or drugs or whatever, to just kind of numb yourself out. But I just wanted to end with that leading into part two to kind of speak about what you just said, which is like, Rehabit is more than an idea. It's got pieces to it. It's already taking shape. And quite frankly, it's something that's been building for 15 years and it will release into the world, and it's going to be messy and it's going to be ugly and it's going to be incomplete and it's constantly going to evolve. But wherever it is, is perfect right now. So just wanted to say that out loud. Um, And I look forward to talking about part two, because like I said, we got about a better part of 12 years to go through to kind of lead us to like what brought us to Rehabit and all the stuff that you're up to right now. So with that,
1: we'll shut her down on interview one. We'll see you guys on the next one. All right, Char. Thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate you. Love you, bud. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for
0: listening to this episode of The Trevor Turnbull Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please consider subscribing on my YouTube channel and on your favorite podcast platform and leave me a review. I'd love to hear from you. Now, until next time, remember, today is a beautiful day of opportunity. Trust that you're exactly where you're supposed to be right now. So be grateful, be curious, and be brave.